Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you're interested in Walter's music. Thanks to Veen Dial for managing WPVMFM. If you'd like to know more about community radio, WPVMFM.org is a good place to start. You can always reach me, Nave, at JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E, and James Nave is my website as well, or JamesNave.com. And if you'd like to join me any Saturday morning at 10 o'clock Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time, for a, a session a writing session that I host called the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week session. I host it with my uh, creative collaborator, Allegra Houston. We gather for an hour from 10 o'clock Mountain Time to 11 o'clock Mountain Time or, or noon Eastern Time to 1 p.m. Eastern Time, and we write. And we have a good fun and we read our work. And after the hour's up, we go on our merry way imaginativestorm.com that's imaginativestorm.com if you're interested in any of that work and today i have a guest i have just gotten to know eliza gilkinson and eliza lives in taos new mexico you may know her name if you've ever been in the world of music if you've ever been to a concert or if you've ever taken a songwriting class uh, eliza teaches songwriting and she tours all over the country and she's been doing it all her life so it's it's a real pleasure to have eliza on this call and on this program because i i love music and i like to sing and play and i do it as an amateur she does it as a professional so eliza welcome so much to twice five miles radio (laughs) that's quite the intro there oh well it's great to be here and uh neighbor (laughs) well you know you and i just live around the corner from each other we do we just found that out (laughs) and i would like to begin by opening this up and asking you why you think songwriting is important and how does it fit in with the other genres of writing? Well, I mean, the component of music is a a wonderful addition to writing in general. It is a different kind of writing when you write to music than poetry or prose. In my case, I really like to let the music set the mood and then I'm just filling in around the music with the words. So not all songwriters do that. They write their lyrics first and then they fit the music around it. But in my case, the music is really essential and groove, uh, just finding a real cadence. Poets really look for a cadence as well because you let the music tell you where to go. That's actually helpful. It gives you one more window of possibilities and closes some other windows. Sometimes I find with writing that if you have too many options, you just don't know where to start. So music is a great way to set up a little form so that you can find an avenue in. So when you have an idea for a song, do you start playing music and then let the idea emerge within the context of the melody? I do, and I would say nine times out of ten, I'm just, I just go to the guitar and fool around with a progression and a melody and a beat. Really, the groove is a big thing. We talk about that a lot in my songwriter classes, and I tell my students it's really much more important to have good groove than it is to have a bunch of musical chops. You can play three chords 
with a groove and it can be mesmerizing whereas you know a busy guitar part with lots of chords isn't necessarily going to get you into the zone I think I'm actually one of the rare writers who starts with the music, so uh, I don't think that's particularly the way everybody has to do it. But I do find that the music puts me into an emotional place that really helps me write. And when did you first get a sense of wanting to do this as a songwriter and a singer? I know that you've been at it a long time. How did it all start? (laughs) Well, honestly... I have one of my first childhood memories in Wyoming. Uh, we were staying at a ranch, at a guest ranch, and my dad, who was a, a famous folk singer, songwriter, used to perform for the guests, and it was always a big thing. All the cowboys would come in, and the kitchen help, and everybody would, and all the guests would come and and sit around this fire in a big cabin, and my dad would sit on a, a bench and sing his songs. And I remember at age five, seeing him sitting there and then crawling across the floor and then coming up and sitting up and looking out, standing right next to him. And I saw, it's like, a, I think it's really one of my first conscious memories. I saw this exchange and I saw that they were traveling together and that there was this exchange between the listener and the singer and that there was this agreement of adventure together. And it was so communal and intimate and otherworldly to me. And I remember just going, what is this? I mean, I wasn't going, that's my future, but I look at it now and yes, it was my future, I saw. (laughs) Did he help you figure out how to make that future happen or did you just sit by his knee and watch him do it? Uh, You know, he was helpful, but he was also of a different generation. He was helpful more by osmosis because he was so melodic. He had a great work ethic. He really sat down and wrote songs. And he had an office right near my bedroom when I was growing up where he would write. And I remember hearing him in that office, you know, the cigarette. He always had the cigarette burning. You know, his desk had cigarette burns on it. I remember certain songs. I remember when he wrote The Bare Necessities in there. I remember hearing it. And I remember seeing it laid out on his desk with his little kind of notes. And he used longhand, like I still do. Your father was a famous songwriter. And, of course, the word fame comes up often in the business of entertainment. And people are trying for fame or they're thinking they might like to have it. Or disappointed that they don't have it. Or disappointed (laughs) that they don't have it. And it's also fleeting. So the famous people of 40 years ago are not known now, and there's a new set. So what's your take on fame? He was a great example of, because I remember when his star was on the wane. I think he was humiliated a little bit. He did what so many of us do. He tried to stay current, and he couldn't do it. It wasn't visceral for him. He was He attempted to write in the vein of what people were writing in the 60s. It was a different angle. We'd all been psychedelicized. He was square. I saw it, you know, I saw it happen. And then I thought he let go very gracefully. The Bare Necessities, the video of The Jungle Book was like the number one selling video in the world for years. That's success to write a a song like The Bare Necessities. And and he had other hits as well. And, And famous people, Johnny Cash, Dean Martin, Frankie Lane, Doris Day, Little Richard, a lot of people did his songs. So the White Stripes did one of his songs even later on. 
So, I mean, he had fame. He'd have what you would have called fame, but he never thought so. And I think that was an indicator to me that it's always relative and that you're always comparing yourself and that you're always just as good as the last thing you wrote and the last thing that was a hit. And so I saw that close up. There was a lot for me to learn from that. I'll never be as famous as he was. <laughs> Even he had issues around it. I mean, eventually he surrendered and he just stopped, which I don't know if I would ever do, even though I'm older now and I'm, I'm certainly not ever going to be the latest thing. You, you have to be able to reconcile that and feel comfortable with it and know that you've built a body of work. I think that's a, a really important part of coming to terms with fame or not fame, recognizing, oh my God, I've I've got a huge body of work. I've got 23 records out and a ton of projects. I have to look back on that and think fame is relative. <laughs> well, the reason I bring it up is because it fame is something that is always part of what seems to drive people. And then I think of your father and the people that you named, all of whom are now gone, and many of whom are remembered historically, but not particularly remembered in popular modern culture. Yeah, musically. Yeah. And, and that question of how do we find relevance as we move through our lives and, and get older? How have you managed to find that relevance for yourself? And I ask that because I've listened to both the CDs that you gave me. You had the protest political one, which I put in my car and drove back and forth to town. Then I switched out and the more Western themed mm -hmm. one that you have. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful, beautiful stuff. So for, as an artist, do you feel like you're staying relevant? And what does that mean? And tie that into writing on the page and writing on the computer. Relevance is relative. <laughs> I think you just have to get to a point where you look for meaning. If what you do has meaning to you, at whatever amount of people, then I think you can f glean a lot of satisfaction from that. Pursuing fame and success is a great motivator and is very interesting once you realize, okay, that's not going to happen. And, and I think I've had a, a really a, a great arc that in certainly in folk music, I've had a really successful arc. I have two Grammy nominations and, you know, a lot of light shined on me and, and certainly enough for one person to have in a lifetime. You can always want more. You can always be driven. But I think there is a point where you just go, I just don't want it. I don't I don't want to I don't want to pursue this thing anymore. I, if it doesn't come to me in a natural way, I'm going to put it out there in whatever way I can. I'm going to make the best music I possibly can and write the best songs. I'm never going to cave on that. But I, I just don't want to be racing around trying to grab a hold of it. I don't like myself. I, I don't like who I am pursuing somebody who's got something that I want. I just don't like it. I don't like doing it. I don't like being that. And so along with that comes a, an acceptance of who you are, what you've done, what you're going to do. Have you ever pursued something that you really wanted and then you got it and you felt like you didn't have what you thought you were trying to get? In life, yes, but in music, I mean, there's a thing we all go through where we, we all go, oh, I want that festival, I want that festival, and, and then you get that festival, and then you get an AM slot with the sun blasting down on you, and you, I want the nighttime slot, I want the spotlight slot, you know, there's this thing where you get the thing, and then you go, that's not enough. 
I mean, that happens a lot. You know, you go, I want to open Richard Thompson's tour, and then you're opening Richard Thompson's tour. And it's like, how am I going to drive? I can't do this. I'm, and, you know, people are talking during my set. Or, you know, there's all these things where you go, why did I do this? <laughs> but then you, you got the thing you wanted, you know. And you teach songwriting. And when you have people who come to you wanting to be songwriters, do they usually have a musical background or do you get people who would like to write songs, but they don't have a musical background? And how do you deal with that? Honestly, I don't find any difference in potential between somebody who knows a bunch of stuff and somebody who doesn't. I have people in my classes who write two chord songs their window is really limited. Their, the box they live in is really limited. But within that limitation, they are so authentic. And I think I'd rather see somebody being themselves within their the limitations of, of their, their musical limitations or their education in music or whatever. And I'd rather see somebody just find that authentic voice because I think there's something so true and powerful that comes from that. So um, I'm more interested in my writers finding that working with certainly hook lines and rhythm and really are great things to do. But I like for people to start where they are right now and take little steps because what I have found is that the element of discovery is more important and speaks uh, more powerfully than some kind of sophisticated knowledge that where you're just backtracking through all these things you already know. So if you're pushing the envelope of something that you've never pushed before and you're taking steps out beyond what you know, then there's a kind of an excitement and energy that's released from that that is really, really noticeable from a listening point of view. So when you have people who come in and they're brand new at this and they're older, do they think it's too late for them? And when people come in thinking it's too late, what do you say to them? And what do you say to people who come in massively ambitious, thinking they're going to get something really big? Do you encourage that? Do you help them understand the business? How does that work? We do talk about that. And I remind them that it's very, very hard. The odds are against you, actually. I do remind them that if they're only doing this because they're driven by a desire to succeed, if that's the only motivation, then they may be vastly disappointed. And, and we talk about that. The things that come up are incredible vulnerabilities around all these things, rejection. I think we, we try to get past the success model and just get into what are you expressing? How best can you express it? And, and how, how do you deal with rejection and critique? We're learning to grow a thicker skin because if you really do have ambition, then you have to fail. And we, we talk about that a lot too. I wish somebody had said to me that success was built on a series of failures. I wish they had told me that, you know, because I just kept thinking, I'm a failure, I'm a failure, I'm a failure. And you start to, you probably get 200 rejections to every yes in, in this business. So you have to learn to just go, okay, what do I need to learn? Am I hearing themes of similar critique that, that says something? Then you have to take that and go, okay, what's the truth in here that I need to shift. How do I grow this? And and some people just go, I can't handle it. And then I tell them, you don't have to change this to make it so that the world accepts it. You're doing this for you. You don't have to 
beat yourself up. You can keep it just the way it is, or you can try these things and try this and think of yourself in the third person. I'm going to do this for her. You know, I talk about myself in the third person all the time. She went here and she should have gone there with that chord progression, but it's like getting that impersonal view about yourself. Or do you have a, an example of how a number of what you call failures morphed into a success? Well, I mean, I think of my records. Uh, with 23 records out, and I started in the late 60s. I, I made my first record in 1969. I was signed to RCA record and was dumped before my record came out. That was my first failure. <laughs> And then it just went on and on and on like that. I got my first Grammy nomination in 2006, I think, and the second one in 2014. So imagine from 1969 all the way to 2006, I never had anything happen on a, on a national scale. I mean, it was just always just plugging away and things not happening. So. I mean, I was able to make a living. I've always been able to make a living, but I never was able to jump onto any next level of anything. All I did was just go, okay, this record didn't work, and I could see why I, I would be able to look back and go, I, I just, I got too new agey, you know, or I got too full of my angst, and, and I got too wordy, and my songs were too long, and there's all these things that I had to look at. Production I overproduced took me years to figure out I needed to strip it back down and get back to that folk song. You know, it took me a lot of mistakes and failures to get there. You have a nice studio and you're doing a lot of stuff online. You're broadcasting from your studio. How have you recalibrated yourself for that? And I'm asking this because there are probably other people out there that might like to do something like what you're doing. So tell us how you've set that up and what you've had to overcome to make that adjustment. Well, it's not just COVID, it's age, you know. I mean, I can't, I don't have the energy and the health to just go tramping around the universe the way I did even five years ago. So I, mean, I could feel it five years ago or three years ago, right before COVID, I was starting to get to this point where my health was starting to get affected by touring. So when COVID hit and, and the limitations were upon us, there was a lot of, of adjusting that had to be made. But the beautiful thing, of course, was Zoom and Internet stuff, Facebook and all these ways we can communicate. It was an interesting adjustment. For one thing, you have to get used to people not clapping after a song and, and look, seeing an audience and all that stuff. You have to go inside to a place where you know they're there and you have to step into your stage archetype for live streaming. And I think it's really important to get your live streaming sound together and your, your visuals together. That's part of the fun of it, setting your little stage and your lighting and getting good sound. All those things are part of stepping into the archetype of a performer. I know there's a lot of people just sit on their bed and do a, uh, do a live stream thing, and that's cool too. But I think if you're really uh, wanting to get notice and get shares and get tips and all those things, then, then I think it's good to have a real professional presentation. <laughs> it's been fun. It's not the same as, to, as live. I've done a few live shows recently, and oh boy, you know, what a blast. It really is a blast. So, so what does your setup look like for people who are listening? 
I have a, a, a really cool setup that my son, of course, you know, if you're older, get your kid to help you. <laughs> I do everything actually through a PA system so that I have a, a mon and a monitor wedge that's coming back to me. So it's, it sounds like my stage setup, which is really helpful to me to have that sense of being on a stage with, with a monitor speaker. The out goes to audio interface that goes to a computer. I use a program called Ecamm. Uh, Ecamm is just great. We're super user-friendly and, and easy to set up with Facebook and, and to store files and stuff. So, and then I use an iPad camera. So I have control over my sound. My, I have a monitor mix with graphics and I have a stereo out mix that goes to, to the recording. And, and, and those have each have their own EQ because it's not always the same what's coming up out of here, what's going over there. So you, so you have to sit in headphones before the show and really get your balance right and everything. And then you can take your headphones off and just have the monitor. It works great. It, it's really like a live show for me with, with, with my usual mic, with my, all, the, all the same equipment that I have on a big stage I have right in front of me in my little studio. If people wanted to tune in to what you do, how would they do that? Well, if you go to my Facebook page, I, ha I have a YouTube page, and I post some of my shows there, too. But if, if you also just follow me on Facebook, then uh, you'll get notices when the shows are coming. Changing the subject a little bit, I came over with my creative partner, Allegra Houston. We had dinner at your house. And you live in a home that's been around for a long time. And you have your studio in one of the rooms in this home. Tell us about this home you live in and how does it influence the way you work creatively? Who owned it? When was it built? That sort of thing. The, the home does have, uh, you know, a storied past. It, it has been abandoned a few times and it was over 100 years old. There are three of the original rooms. The, f the big living room actually used to be a little store. Uh, in the 20s, and it has a sunken floor, and they, it's a dirt floor that has been sealed and painted. It's so old. The walls are mud. I think it has a dirt roof that they just put a roof over because dirt is always coming down. It's a really old house, so it's got 13-inch wide, thick pine plank floors, and, and but every room's a little different. They used to add on as they went along in these houses, so it, it, somebody just kept rambling on, so it's just gotten more space added on. I think they added on a, you know rooms, and then they added on an apartment upstairs, and they, they just kept doing all this stuff to it, so it's really eclectic. And it sat on the market for a long time. It's not modern, but it was affordable t for me I bought it on a whim nine years ago because I thought someday I want to come back here. And then we rented it out. And then when COVID hit, it was like, God, let's go there. It, the house has had some interesting people who've lived here. The person before us was a gardener. She really had her way with the place. And I love the stuff she did in the 70s and 80s. It, it's I'm happy with her improvements. <laughs> At first, I thought, I've got to redecorate. And then I was like, no, everything is going to cost so much money. And every time you go into a house like this, it's like, better just to leave it. <laughs> you have been living in Taos for nine years. And I know when I was listening to the work you did on the two CDs you gave me, one was the folk songs. The other one was political. And you were expressing your political frustrations maybe your desires your dreams when you write politically 
about things that are important to you. How do you approach the text, the material, so that it has an impact on the listener? I'm really a fan of of not writing message music because I, it, there's something about message music where you you're just t- talking at people, and I I I just don't think it it's effective. What I get in touch with is how I feel. And so I, I can run the gamut of how I feel. A lot of times I feel grief. And so I, because I'm, I'm just so sad, you know, I'm sad about the future. I'm sad about the natural world. I'm sad about my children. And so I'm dealing with grief and that comes through. There's a sort of a, a bittersweetness to naming the things that are still so beautiful and so worth fighting for. I want to give people a safe place to grieve. And I have to get in touch with my grief to do that. And then there's also my anger, and then there's my hope. And so when I write a song like Peace in Our Hearts, it's like, we're going to do this together, you know. And I turn to community a lot in my sense of the advantages of communal living and communal activism. There's a lot of that in my music, too. I like to write things that people will sing together that are easy for people to sing, you know, not uncomplicated um, refrains so that people will uh, want to sing with me or, or they'll want to sing it when they're in, a, in marching or together. And I don't know a lot of times when I am going to write a political song, but if I use my feelings to get myself into a mood on the guitar first... I find a feeling that the guitar will mirror for me grief and anger and uh, hopefulness and, uh, and the communal call to arms. Grief. We often think of grief as something that, that we do when we have a specific loss. The kind of grief you're talking about is more of an ongoing grief. Can you talk yeah. about that a bit? I, feel, I think we're all traumatized right now. I think so many of us who are still sentient, and, and this is one of the reasons I think we, sh- we need to be writing, is to maintain a c- contact with our own sense of sentience. We have to manage our grief. If we shut our, the wall off from it, then we're going to stop caring. And if we stop caring, then we're screwed. One of my goals is to make sure that we stay sentient. And so I think we're all sharing grief, feeling these things, and then we're putting them somewhere because we've got to get up every day. But it's still in there, you know, it's in the pit of your stomach. And music is a great way to safely experience these things that are hard to feel by yourself. And in the context of a musical performance or listening to music, you can allow, it's almost like a safe place to let these things come up and and have their way with you and then to be able to go on, keep going. Do you find and do you value anger and hope and the other emotions equally? It's funny because when you're young, grief and angst are your main motivators. If you listen to my music from the early years till now, it's like this person just working through, you know, bad relationships and divorces and losses and grief and all this stuff and really an angst-driven person. And then it's like, well, she starts to get happier. And then it's like, now what are you going to write about? You know, how do you write about joy? It's it's a lot harder to find ways to write about it, ways to express it that aren't silly, you know. How do you write about meaningful love, you know, not just romantic um, passion, fatuation. How do you write about love that's 
20 years in, that kind of thing. And so that's one of the things I work on because how do you tap into that? What is it you're tapping into and what is it you want to say? You want to say something profound about deeper relationships and you kind of root around in how you feel to get there. I do find that a balance is a good idea. I don't want to make a totally miserable record. I want to take people on a journey where they start out made to feel safe, and then we go down and we root around in things, and we explore those things, and then we pull ourselves out because we got to move, we got to go on with our lives. So that's why I still love making records as a body in itself, each record, that it's a journey in itself. And I still do that. I, I love to take people on a trip where they go through this gamut of feelings and then they at the end they're let free again. So that's what I like to do. And I think I'm, I'm good at doing that. That um, is natural to me. What would be an example of some lyrics that you've written that would speak to joy or to love in a more nuanced way? A love song. Baby walks a wire without a net. Baby gives his heart with no regret. And from this height where he'll risk the fall for what might be, he waits for me, he waits for me. You know, I I can trace my memories through the dust, the ruins of my wanderlust, but those are lost who try to cross through the sorrow fields too easily. He waits for me, he waits for me. That's joyful to me, but that's also profound love and finding something that's long-term. So you've just done a spoken word piece of a song that you sing. What is your view of the spoken word movement and singing with music? And how often have you switched from just singing with your instruments to doing spoken word? I've written a few songs that are spoken word over music or uh, and not rhyming or anything. It's it's just like a rant. I've done a couple of rants and I had big fun doing them, but I'm not that good at it. And I have so much respect for people who can just pow words without having, you know, music is a crutch for me. It does a lot of the heavy lifting for me. So I have, you know, lots of respect for people who just go and just use the words in their voice to, to get something across without relying on some music to help them navigate. Why is rhyming so important in songwriting? And when you write a song, do you ever write songs that don't have a lot of rhymes? I'm so in awe of songwriters who can write songs that don't have rhymes in them. Because for me, I want people to have something that's unusual, it makes them think, and then go back to something that feels familiar. Because step by step, they want to take a step forward into the unknown, and then they want to feel safe. And then they want to take another step, and then they want to feel safe. And rhyming is a very traditional way of maybe people feeling secure. You don't know why, but it's unconscious. It lands on a rhyme, especially on that last uh, word in a, in a verse landing on a rhyme like A, B, C, B, or I'll go A, B, A, B sometimes. My goal is to make people work through dis- a little discomfort and feel safe. So rhyming is a, one of the ways that I do that. I love rhyming, and I've often tried to do rhymy poems without punching the rhymes so that nobody notices it. Putting them into in, in the internally in the phrase, kind of, so that well, they're not or, at the end of the phrase. Or well, the internal rhymes, 
or the false rhymes, which almost rhyme. We love and then, those. And then the rhymes that are at the end of the phrase, which yeah. do, do rhyme. I'm thinking of when one is performing, whose woods these are, I think I know his house is in the village, though. He will not <laughs> see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. Or whose woods these are, I think I know his house is in the village, though he will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's cool. That's way cool. And we've done that as exercises before, like read without having the thing fall on the rhyme. How would you say these expressions? And that's a, that's a really cool thing to do, take it out of the usual pattern. And you wonder if the psychology hears the rhyme, no matter whether we make the rhyme happen vocally or not. But that's part of that feeling safe thing, because if they notice it unconsciously, then the job is done. You don't have to overdo it. If it's in there somewhere, and it then it's visceral, and then the job is done because they're feeling that. And that somewhere in there, they're feeling the, the order. It, I, I think order and chaos, you got to swing between them, all chaos, all the time, then you just start to lose the center. And the, But if it's too ordered, too, it, it's boring. So, I mean, it's, it's dance. Which also brings up the issue or the thought of trust. When you're generating material, how much do you trust your listening audience or the people who will receive it? Do you trust their higher sensibility? I'm, that's a good question because I, if I'm doing a show, I try this and then I gauge response. And if that's working, then I know I can try this. If I feel like they're not with me and I can tell when they are and when they aren't usually, <laughs> if they're not with me, then I go back to something that's easier. Something I have a couple of funny songs. Getting them to sing with me is a great way for them to still their minds and to get locked in. I met a young African shaman years ago who was was also a professor of ethnic studies. He was actually brought up as a shaman in his tribe, and he did readings for people. And he would do the bones in his hand, and then he'd throw them down, and he'd look, and well, no, and then he'd do it again. He'd do it like three times, and then, oh, okay. And what it was was he said it was just... I'm waiting for you, you know, you and me to hook up here. Once that happened, then he could do the reading. So that's what my show is like. I'm throwing down the bones to see when there is organized enough that we're on the same page and then we can go somewhere together. When you write, do you do it every day or you do it whenever the mood strikes you? Some writers say they are successful writers every day because they show up at 9.30 and they leave at 5.30 and that's that. Is yours more organic or do you have a set time? I love those people that do that. I know I have plenty of friends who really write that way and, they're, and they write great stuff, but that's not me. I, um, you know, my thing is much more, I, I think I'm one of those artist way kind of people that my job is to go out and have life experiences that that are so meaningful to me that I want to write about them or that they they strike something in me and then I'll I'll catch it. So I don't sit around and uh, instead I'm gathering information. I go outside, I I hang out, I contact other people, I read, 
I'm in nature. I make sure I'm out in nature every day because I live in it. And then, uh, you know, I'll spend a little time with the instrument. I'll maybe mess with lyrics or something. But, and then something comes and I'll just set it aside. I don't... Uh, I don't have a, I don't have a, an MO really. I, um, and I, I, a discipline. I am very disciplined about having a, a meaningful life though. <laughs> meaningful life, simplicity, another one of the topics, grief, anger, hope, joy, simplicity. Talk about simplicity a uh, it's you know it's it's one of those um, goals that you never feel like you've quite reached, and I think in a consumer and consumerist world, you know, we're there's so much junk around us all the time too. But I do find that in, if I'm really getting ready to write a record and to really put together a collection of songs, I have to turn off media. I've got to really simplify. I clean my house. I have complete order around me. And everything is clean and simple. I, ha I, I have to have an environment like that. Although, you know, if, I, if I'm just on the run, I can write something down on a napkin and come back later. I, I've, I've written in, in the middle of chaos, but I prefer if I'm going to sit down and write, I, I like to have everything around me simple. Uh, all media, all external uh, stuff is turned off. I've heard some songwriters say, oh, I wrote it on the way to the concert on the back of the yeah. napkin and it was fully yeah. formed. Do you have an ex do you have an experience of a fully formed song that came boom? Sure. Yeah, I've got a lot of those. I mean, it's crazy how many of those I have. It's I, I, once I get a, a form set up, the song is like really fast for me. So uh, and then I spend weeks changing out lines. I, I am a, a real terrier when it comes to editing. I, I'm just ruthless and vicious, <laughs> but I'm not that until I have a real form and, and something really concrete down. I'm, I'm pretty loose and woo-woo till I've got something. What are some of the questions you ask when you're editing? Oh, well, certainly verse placement. Sometimes I'll find later that this verse was the opening, and I move around my verses a lot. And then I move lines within lines. I, I'm in the process of doing that right now. I mean, I'm just moving lines around like crazy. It's amazing to have that freedom to move lines around. You start to get a real sense of, of what's working and, and what isn't. So I, I'm actually right in the thick of that right now on, on, in a project I'm working on. So I am really playing with lines. And, and then I have to weigh each line against, is this really working? I ha then I'm very critical. Is this line real? Is this the best? Is this really the best choice of words? Is this the best line I could have done for this? And is it singing is the other thing. Because some things might be okay written down, but they don't sing at all. Certain words won't sing. How do you know when it's done? I feel so good. I feel so good. I go, yeah, you, you did it. <laughs> We're there, you know. And then I might still just go back and go, ah, one more thing. But, but I have a sense of eureka. We're there. Usually. <laughs> so for people who would like to start writing songs, getting their voices out there, what kind of advice do you have for them? 
I think the best thing to do, because this is what happens on my workshops, too, they've started a Casa de Musica um, songwriter group, and they meet often without me being there. So getting a group of people who have learned the language of critique and know how to be supportive, I think that is the best thing you can do, is to get with other writers, writers who are starting out, writers who've had maybe done a few workshops with one of the many instructors so that they get a feel for how that how critique works and how support works in a writing group. I think that's the best thing anybody can do. I, I, I really do. Uh, and and their open mics, all that kind of thing, where you just go get one song, two songs together to perform, and you just get this one little shot, but you learn every time you do it, you learn something. So I'm, I'm glad that those open mic things are still happening. So in closing, what is the language of critique? The language of critique, number one, is to is for people, everyone to realize that we're on the same team. And, and if it's just one-on-one, that you're on their side. If you're going to critique somebody's song or they're going to critique yours, the first thing you have to do is have the understanding, a visceral understanding that, that you are on each other's side, that you already feel that that person is a songwriter and a bona fide writer, that that is a creative person, and that you're tr- you treat each other that way. So I'm not going to listen to somebody's critique who that I don't know and haven't established a, a relationship of trust with. I think that's a mistake, and, and because we're vulnerable when we're starting out especially, we're just going to take everybody's advice. And that is really probably not a good idea. I think you find a few key people who you really trust, who have proven that their critique is helpful and honest and true. I'd rather have one or two of those than 10 others who go this or this or that or that. I mean, I've had people tell me things that were absolutely wrong. It was not good critique. They had their own issues or whatever, but I had a song that uh, that I wrote specifically so that people would not have to work to get a chorus. It was an easy, easy, easy chorus. And I played it out, and boy, I had some music business kind of person in the audience really, you know, really, uh, you could have gone, you you could have gone so much further with that chorus. And I was like, you know what, I don't know you, and you don't know what my goal was. Meanwhile, everybody in the crowd was singing. It's like, well, do you not get it? Maybe what they wanted from me was they want my depth of lyrics all the time, but sometimes people need a break from that. So anyway, learning to have critique and also learning to take it even if you don't agree with what somebody said. Thank you so much. I'm going to be playing it for my peers next week. I don't like when people give me unsolicited advice and critique. I I haven't asked for it. I think it's nice to go where you're asked, where you're invited. (laughs) That's really, really good advice. And I think we all feel that way. If you invite something, then the door is open. Invitation's not issued. The door is closed. I think that's actually the good good way to put it, you know. It's cuz we're we're all trying to figure this stuff out, but there's a lot of projecting going on onto each other too that, that we're not aware of at the time and so, yeah, we we don't want to make ourselves cuz we're we're all as writers, we are all in a very vulnerable position. We don't know. I mean, I think even Bob Dylan goes, "I don't know. Is that a good lyric?" I mean, <laughs> I think I think um, we don't know, you know, uh, so we're, we're, we're vulnerable. That's quite true. And we've reached the top of our time together. 
And on that vulnerable note, I'd like to say thank you for being with us today. So much fun. (laughs) We'll do it again somewhere else down the line. Let's do. Let's do. And there you go, my friends. Thus concludes my conversation with Eliza Gilkison. I'm confident you know a bit more about songwriting than you did before this conversation. While I do a great deal of writing, poetry, prose, etc., never really written a song. I've always been fascinated by how singer-songwriters or songwriters put the songs together and then how they marry the songs with the with the music. It's not necessarily a dramatic mystery for me, but it is a bit of a mystery. How do they connect the words and the music? And speaking of music, you hear a bird in the forest. When I recorded this interview with Eliza, I was in Taos and we were on Zoom recording the interview. And now I'm in Asheville, North Carolina, and I'm sitting on the back porch of Davine Dial's house. I've mentioned Davine many times in this show because she's the manager of WPVM-FM where this show always airs first, WPVMFM.org, if you're interested in finding out more about the community radio station here in Asheville. Davine is good to me. When I come to Asheville, she gives me a spot. Uh, actually, she has a nice Airbnb accommodation, and so she's happily willing to let me spend some time in Asheville. And when I am here, I enjoy sitting on this tiny little back porch, maybe 50 square feet, screened in, overlooking a forest. And that's where the bird sings. Now, of course, the bird may not sing again, now that I've mentioned the bird singing, but that's just the way birds operate, I suppose. You might also hear a crow. Why birds? Well, birds are singing. And birds have a language. You may think when you wake up in the morning and you hear the birds singing outside, oh, they're singing for me as I wake up. Well, actually, while they may be entertaining you when you wake up, they're marking their territory. So each bird has its own section, and the birds sing in different parts of their sections and let the other birds know where their territory is. Now, I'm sure that... If you're an ornithologist, uh, an expert on birds, you could probably tell all of us all of the reasons why birds sing. I'm no expert on birds. I have done a little bit of bird watching over the years, so I do know a bit about it, but not all that much. But I do like knowing that birds sing for reasons other than to entertain you and to entertain me. They are making songs. And those songs are communicating whatever they want to communicate with the other birds. Do the birds hear each song as a language? Do the blue jays hear the cardinals saying, Hey, buddy, you know, don't cross that branch. That's that's my territory. I, I don't know if that's what they hear or not. But I love the idea of the songs being a form of language. And if we pause for just a moment to listen to what's out there right now, maybe we can interpret it. Let's give it a try.
I'll leave it up to you to figure out what those birds were talking about, but it's nice to just sit back for a moment and listen to the birds. So when you're thinking about your own inclination to maybe write a song, it's probably worth redefining what it means, just like any other writing. Songwriting is about capturing the moments around you, capturing how you hear, see, feel, touch, smell the, the environment you're in. Like the one that I'm in right now, you can hear the crows. They're busy, they're busy, the crows are busy. Also the birds in the trees are still out there and they're still busy. And one of the reasons that I'm so fascinated with all those musical notes that you can hear in the environment around you as well as the musical notes that come out of your own own lungs, your, your own vocal cords. I've always felt a little diminished around my own singing. Some people can hear a sound or hear a bird song or hear a song that somebody else has written, and they can reproduce it, no problem, as if they've taken it in, lodged it in their psychology, and then they just sing along with it as it spools out in their head. I've never been able to do that, so I've always been fascinated by how people do such things. Even though I can't hit the notes on command, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, di, do, you can tell right away that I don't really have a, a bead on how to match the do, re, mi, fa, so, la, di, do with the notes on the scale. So I've always felt like if I can't match the notes on the scale, then I can't sing. And it is true. I would be a terrible stage singer or terrible on the mic trying to sing a song. That said, when I use my voice without trying to sing, it sounds fine, like on the radio, like right now. So I tend to do more vocal things within the range that I'm comfortable with, which from a singing point of view is relatively limited. But from a listening point of view, it's fine if you are listening to my voice, the voice you're hearing now, as a voice that's not singing. Is there a difference? Absolutely. When you listen to Eliza Gilkison sing her beautiful songs, they're melodic, like the bird songs in the forest. When I sing, or when I use my voice, it's melodic as well, but it really doesn't have a range. Now, why am I talking about this? I'm talking about this because I have discovered how unwise it is to indict yourself because of what you were born with. You were born with all your senses. You can smell, taste, hear, see, touch, maybe even intuit. How many senses do we actually have? And some of your senses are more acute than others. You may be able to hear more sounds than your neighbor. You might be able to feel or smell in ways that somebody else can't feel or smell. And of course, your voice. The people who knew your voice 10 years ago will still know it. 20 years might pass, 30, maybe 35 or 40 years might pass. And people who knew you when you were younger 
will still recognize your voice. Your voice stays the same throughout your entire life. It may deepen. It may sound a little older than it did when you were young. And yet the basis for your voice, the core of your voice, it remains the same. And people recognize it. And those who care about you get very excited when they hear your voice. And I know I'm thinking of some of the friends of mine I have, and I'm thinking of their voices and how I may not be able to hear songs in my head, but I can feel the sense of my, my good friends' voices. They speak sometimes in high register, sometimes in deep register, and yet it's distinct to me, each voice is distinct, a bit like I imagine these bird songs in the woods right now. A bird is a bird, a crow is a crow, a cardinal a cardinal, a vireo a vireo, a house wren a house wren. And yet each little bird has its own distinct personality just like you do and just like I do. So when you hear the birds calling, you may go, oh, I, I, I hear the crow. Oh, I hear a number of crows. To me, each crow sounds the same. To the crows, they probably have very different voices. So maybe even the birds can recognize the individual voices like, like we recognize the individual voices that we have when we're listening to each other or when we have years go by and as the years proceed and we are without the sounds of those we've cared about in the past and suddenly somebody appears at your door knock 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 hi haven't seen you in years you know exactly who they are even if you hear them first you'll know them and there's something comforting about that feels like home if you know what i mean which brings me back to eliza's songs her songs are all about home, place, community, getting together. If you would like to hear some of Eliza's work, you can go to YouTube. Her new album, Songs from the Riverwind, is available. Eliza, E-L-I-Z-A, Gilkison, G-I-L-K-Y-S-O-N. That's all you need. And once you go, listen to her on YouTube you will find out exactly what I'm talking about. So this brings us up to the songwriting end of this show. I do appreciate you tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed the bird songs in the backyard. The birds have kind of quietened down now because feeding time is over. There's a lawnmower in the distance. I hear somebody hammering through the woods to the other side and the morning air is cool sky is blue, contrasted with the green of the thick forest. Porch is still small. I'm still here, making the final part of this show. And thank you ever so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We've been talking about songwriting with uh, Eliza Gilkison. So I hope you've learned something about that. And we're always broadcasting this show first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org. 
The Voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Walter Parks, thank you for the theme song. Love Walter's music. If you'd like to know more about Walter, WalterParks.com is a good place to look. Devine Dial, thank you for letting me stay in your Airbnb when I'm in Asheville. And also thank you for managing WPVM-FM. We couldn't do this without you. And you're a fantastic manager as well as a supporter of community radio. WPVMFM.org if you'd like to know more about community radio. And if you would like to connect with me, I would be happy to hear from you. Be wonderful. Well, what's going on in your world? Nave at jamesnave.com. Nave spelled N-A-V-E. Nave at jamesnave.com. My website's jamesnave.com. And if you would like to join me any Saturday morning for our writers group, we call it the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week session. We meet at noon Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Mountain Time on Zoom. You can always find the link for the Zoom on imaginativestorm.com. That's imaginativestorm.com. Doors always open. We would absolutely love to have you. And on that note, once again, thanks ever so much for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio. And I do hope you tune in again next time. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line. <laughs>